Sirius XM presents Stanford Pathfinders. Stanford has 225,000 alumni living all over the globe in 151 countries. And they're some of the most amazing people you would ever want to meet. A show about how the graduates of Stanford University are changing our lives and the world. We'll hear very interesting things from business leaders in the technology sector, but well beyond that. The worlds of politics, entertainment, business, and beyond. Inspiring stories from America's innovation heartland. It's a place where people look to the future, not to the past, where they don't rest on their laurels. Think about the gold rush. Think about Stanford being formed in the late 1800s. And then Stanford was the beginning of Silicon Valley. And the ethos of Silicon Valley is deeply embedded in the Stanford spirit. It's a spirit of innovation, experimentation. It's a spirit of being willing to try new things and risk failure as long as you fail forward. Welcome to Stanford Pathfinders. Founder and CEO of Boba Network and Enya. Boba Network is a decentralized blockchain project where Enya is a contributor to. More than 20 years of experience building and investing in enterprise startups. So I went over to the dark side, became an investor for a few years, investing in, in startups and supporting founders. This week on Stanford Pathfinders, Alan Chu. Now here's your host, Howard Wolf. Blockchain. Everywhere I go these days, people are talking about the blockchain. Some people actually understand what it is, but most folks haven't a clue. Most, quite frankly, are faking it when they say they do. And how does all this blockchain stuff relate to cryptocurrency? And as if that weren't confusing enough, then there is Web3. Not Web3.0, I might add, but simply Web3. And why does that matter? Today's guest on Stanford Pathfinders is Alan Chu, and he, I hope, is going to help us understand all of this. Alan holds a Bachelor's of Science in Electrical and Computer Engineering from the University of British Columbia, UBC, as well as an MS in Management from the Stanford Graduate School of Business, where he was a Sloan Fellow in a program now known as the MSX program. Most important to today's discussion, Alan is an expert and these emerging trends as an investor, founder, entrepreneur, and visionary on the cutting edges of technology. He has recently founded Enya and Boba Networks, two startups that are helping to define these new worlds of blockchain, cryptocurrency, and Web3. Alan, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Great to see you, Howard. So let's start with your Stanford origin story. You went to the University of British Columbia undergraduate, but then you ended up at Stanford at the GSB where you got a master's in what was then known as the Sloan program, now MSX. Why Stanford? Why that program? So I'm a two-time immigrant. My parents immigrated from Hong Kong to Vancouver, Canada when I was a teenager, and then I came to the U.S. And so when I first arrived in Canada, I remember reading this book, a biography, written by a GSB alum who grew up in Hong Kong and went to the GSB to change his life. And that book left an impression on me. So that was my first introduction to the GSB. And then years later, my younger sister got into the Sloan program and invited me to her graduation celebrations. And throughout her year, she kept sharing amazing stories with me and kept telling me how much I would enjoy being here. So I applied and amazingly got in. All right, so let's talk a little bit about your career path before business school and after business school. Tell us about the arc of your career. So I studied electrical and computer engineering at the University of British Columbia in Canada. 
So I started my career as a software engineer. I jumped into a startup, and fortunately, it was a very successful startup with a very strong culture. Went public three and a half years later. So I learned a lot about what scaling organization was like. And by the way, the CEO of the company was also a GSV alum. And keeping it in the family. Yeah, I learned a lot from him personally as well. So that got me hooked in the, in the startup life ever since because it was just accelerating. So um, yeah, I kept in the staying in the startup world, moved from engineering to product management, had another exit a few years later in the cloud storage space. And incidentally, both companies that had a successful outcome uh, had to do with distributed systems technology, which eventually led me to doing what I do today. But out of the GSB, originally I was going to go start a company right away, but I got recruited by a faculty member and now a great friend, Rob Siegel, to join his venture firm. So I went over to the dark side, became an investor for a few years, investing in, in startups and supporting founders. But after a few years, I got restless and really wanted to go back to building companies and shipping products. So eventually co-founded Enya. All right. So as I said in the introduction, we're going to talk about a number of different topics that are fairly opaque to the vast majority of people, but are incredibly transparent to you. And so I want to start off with blockchain. Okay. I'm going to ask you a series of questions because I'm going to try to educate myself, but also educate the listener. So let's start off. What is blockchain in layman's terms, not computer science terms, not, you know, not technical terms. What is blockchain? So first of all, a blockchain is a network, right? It's a network of computers running certain kinds of software. Now, this network has a number of attributes that are interesting. One is it can just keep growing. What really sets it apart from other networks like the, the internet that we have known over the last several decades um, is that when we think about the internet and, and what runs the internet today, like Amazon, big companies like Google and Facebook, they have built their own really scalable distributed networks, right? They can do a lot of computing and storage for all of us. But you can't just plug your computer to join Google's internal network. They won't let you, right? So that kind of network is, is called permissioned. Right? It is under the control of a centralized entity like Google or Amazon. But blockchain is a different kind of network where anyone could join and help operate this network. But you can, there are many blockchains in the world now. You can choose whichever blockchain you want to be a part of, download a piece of software and start running what is called a node, basically that piece of software on your computer to be part of that block, particular blockchain network. And, and, and why is that valuable? Why, why does that matter? Why that matters? That's a great question. One of the, the complaints that people have about the current state of the web is powers are too centralized, right? We've got a lot of big tech companies that they control a lot of information and it's hard to disrupt them because in order to provide that level of service, you need to aggregate a lot of resources, build these humongous networks. And these networks have to be under the control of a centralized entity. So the powers naturally accrue to very few large entities. But in, in a blockchain-centric world, these networks are called decentralized, meaning they don't, all of these computers that form one blockchain network, they don't need to be owned by the same entity. Anyone could join and help operate these networks. And that creates the potential for a more decentralized web. Now, I'd say potential because we're not there yet, far from it. So it's sort of the democratization of the web. 
Yes, that's a great way to put it. Okay, so when I think of blockchain, and we're going to get to cryptocurrency in a second, everyone seems to kind of talk about blockchain and then talk about cryptocurrency. But before we go there, blockchain, I also understand, can bolster communities and organizations. And you talked about decentralized. So I know there are these decentralized autonomous organizations, so-called DAOs. Talk to us a little bit about how blockchain can help bolster community in the world. So blockchain as a decentralized network allows anyone to participate and help operate this network. And this is an interesting case study of how technology actually starts changing culture or creating a new kind of culture. Because when you start thinking about it, if I operate a number of computers that form a part of of a blockchain network and there are other people around the world doing the same, then naturally I would feel like I want to have a say in how this blockchain might evolve. Right. And so going back to the phrase that you use, democratization of the web, this is a form of democratization as well, as in I'm providing resources to help operate this network. I feel like I want to have a say. So over time, people started to figure out, well, how might we gather the voices of all of these stakeholders who don't know each other, but are somehow collaborating in keeping a network alive? How do we make sure they, the voices are heard and how are decisions being made? in a way that honor and respect the voices of all, of all of these stakeholders. And that led to the creation of this concept of a decentralized autonomous organization or DAO, where rules are set up and, and, and enforced in software to govern how decisions are made, how much voting power each party has, and different DAOs will have different rules. It's kind of like different countries having different constitutions, of, even with among democracies, the different form of, forms of democracies. So similarly, Different DAOs will have different forms of voting and governance structures to in order to, to make decisions in a way that best fits the stage of evolution of their particular organization. And, and I guess one of the things that's beneficial to um, the blockchain is that it's essentially a ledger, right, that is decentralized, but you can verify that someone actually is a part of that blockchain, and that's indisputable. Whereas, you know, in the elections that we've seen in the U.S. over the last several years, there's disputes about whether someone was actually valid as someone that could vote. But in blockchain, you have a ledger that really verifies things. Is that the right way to think about it? Exactly. You have a ledger that is shared and transparent and open. So anyone can inspect it. And the ledger entries are immutable. They cannot be changed after the fact. And how a ledger entry becomes accepted by the ledger is also governed by a a set of algorithms that are embedded in open source software. So anyone can inspect the algorithm. So everything is transparent. And that gives rise to a higher level of trust because of the transparency. People trust what's recorded on a blockchain to be the uh, the source of truth. Got it. All right, let's pivot to from blockchain to cryptocurrency. As I said earlier, people tend to talk about blockchain as being the underlying foundation of cryptocurrency. What, in layman's terms, is cryptocurrency? Cryptocurrency is very closely related to to blockchain, but in very simple terms, it's a form of digital currency that is decentralized, meaning it is not issued by something like a central bank. Its characteristics, whether there's inflation or not, whether supply can be increased or fixed or decreased over time, Again, it's implemented in code, and the code is open source and inspectable. And these pieces of software are often deployed in a form, it's what's called smart contracts. 
So smart yeah, contracts. Smart contracts. So smart contracts are small, small programs that run on blockchains. So blockchains, again, are decentralized. No one entity owns them. These smart contracts, once they're deployed on, on a blockchain, they run autonomously. They don't require ongoing maintenance. And a cryptocurrency is basically a form of smart contract that represents digital value that could be exchanged. And since the characteristics of any particular cryptocurrency is transparent, investors and users can decide on their own which cryptocurrency best suits their needs. People might buy either, which is the cryptocurrency on Ethereum, the smart contract blockchain network. People might buy either just as a way to pay for transactions on Ethereum. Others might buy either as an investment because they think more and more people are going to be using Ethereum, the blockchain net network, and therefore that would drive more demand for Ether because the more people use Ethereum, the network, the more demand there is for Ether, the currency. And so there are two aspects to, to a cryptocurrency. One is how its utility, how it's being used. The other one is the investment aspects to a uh, cryptocurrency as well. And it feels like the latter is the one that gets the most press these days because the use case is fairly limited, whereas the speculative nature of things is quite broad. Is that a fair articulation of what's happening right now? Yeah, that's totally fair. And that's a reflection of how early we are still in the adoption of blockchain and, and cryptocurrency, because since just early, the demand for a particular cryptocurrency on a blockchain network is still relatively low compared to the broader economy or other established economies. And At the, the reason, same time, it means the potential for growth is high, and that is yeah. speculation. And the reason that people are excited about digital currencies on the blockchain is that you can obviate the need to have federal players involved, whether it's the US or the Euro or whatever. You don't have governments involved. It's something that is international in nature and doesn't have a lot of friction in the system. Is that a fair representation? That's totally drawing what is drawing some of the early attention in cryptocurrencies because one, they are they're borderless. So it helps you create a, a more frictionless economy. You can, and if you combine cryptocurrency with a blockchain and DAO, what we end up seeing is, that, and this is happening today, anyone around the world could decide to contribute to a DAO that is developing some sort of blockchain project and get rewarded by the, the associated cryptocurrency. And this contributor could be a 13-year-old girl in India. No one would know because in the online world, you can participate in these networks and in these DAOs under a pseudonym. And that helps to eliminate a lot of the biases against gender, age, race, where you're from, accent that you speak with. It's all about the quality of your work. So we're, we're recording this in July of 2022. And even though we're in the midst of summer, everyone's still talking about the crypto winter, which us hard in the spring, where we saw a tremendous decline in the value of digital currencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum and others. Has that changed your feelings about these emerging technologies, or are you still bullish on this world of cryptocurrency? I think fluctuations in, in valuations during the early phases of adoption of, of new and world-changing technology are to be expected. Just think back to the early days of the web where the, the valuation of even now really blue chip tech companies like Amazon, the valuations were really volatile in the, in the late 90s and early 2000s. And long term, I'm still very bullish about what we're building because of the potential of really creating a more fair 
a more frictionless economy where more folks around the world could participate in developing new smart contracts, new decentralized applications without asking for permission. They don't really need to necessarily have to come from the right families, have the right pedigrees, or show up with the right credentials before they could start contributing. So you probably read that Stanford just announced the new Door School of Sustainability. It's a huge announcement with a massive gift and a real focus on the environment and sustainability. At the same time, you read a lot about the environmental implications of cryptocurrencies and how that affects our environment because of all the energy that's used to mine cryptocurrencies. Talk a little bit about that and how you balance those two things. Yeah, in the early days, like Bitcoin, for example, was the first cryptocurrency that really caught mainstream imagination. And it's built on a consensus algorithm that in the industry is called proof of work. That's really energy intensive. And the idea is that energy intensity will help to deter nefarious actors from attacking the network, right? Because it, it increases the cost of mounting an attack and helps to secure the currency. But of course, the downside of that is the energy consumption. But the good news is Bitcoin mining will eventually end. That's written into the code. And of course, Bitcoin is not the only one that is using proof of work. Ethereum currently is still based on a proof of work algorithm. But Ethereum itself has recognized this energy consumption as an issue and is shifting to a different consensus protocol that is much more energy efficient and it relies on other mechanisms to protect the network. And since then, uh, most cryptocurrencies and blockchains that have been created are mostly using this new form of consensus algorithm called proof of stake that is much more energy efficient. So yes, the early cryptocurrencies have been energy intensive, but the newer ones have shifted away from, from that model. And the old, even the older ones like Bitcoin, eventually that kind of mining will come to an end. This is Stanford Pathfinders. I'm Howard Wolf. Coming up, I'll ask Alan Chu what Web3 is really all about. Next on SiriusXM Business Radio Channel 132. Welcome back to Stanford Pathfinders. I'm Howard Wolf, and I'm talking with serial entrepreneur Alan Chu about blockchain, cryptocurrency, and Web3. How did NFTs fit into all of this? Ah, NFTs have played a great role in bringing mainstream attention to cryptocurrency. So NFT stands for non-fungible tokens, as opposed to a Bitcoin, which is a fungible token, as in like I could own a Bitcoin and you could own a Bitcoin and they're just the same, even though you know, not one is better than the other. Non-fungible tokens are unique. For example, there's a very well-known collection of NFTs called Board Apes. The Board Ape that I own is globally unique over space-time. So you might own a Board Ape, but it's different than the one that I own. And each one might have a different combination of attributes. And based on how rare that combination is, that drives the value of the particular NFT. Now, that's the most popular understanding of NFTs. But NFTs as a technology actually has a lot more utility. For example, there are applications out there that use these tokens to represent a unique financial position that could be tradable. Other projects, other DAOs might use NFTs to represent voting rights or governance rights that could be traded with other parties that are interested in acquiring these rights. So NFTs actually have a lot of utility beyond what we see in popular media. Well, and they also have a utility, you and I have talked about this, of creating community, right? So the graduating seniors of Stanford this year, the class of 2022, worked with the university we helped 
uh, for them to form an NFT that just proves that they graduated from Stanford, which they just want to have, to have that in their digital wallet. And so we were happy to do that. Now, it's not something that could be tradable. We didn't want people to be able to monetize their Stanford degree, but it's something they felt as the graduating senior class could create community for their fellow classmates. So we've talked about blockchain. We've talked about cryptocurrency. I, want, I now want to go to Web3. Now, it's not Web3.0. Remember, it was Web2.0, but it's Web3. What is Web3? You touched on it a little bit earlier. And how does it differ from Web 1.0 or 2.0? When the web was first created, there was this grand vision of creating a truly decentralized network of information, participants. The original creators didn't really foresee the state of the web today, where it's dominated by a number of centralized powers. And that's because one piece was missing. There was a lack of economic incentives for individuals to participate in, in creating value for the network. And that changed with the creation of blockchain and cryptocurrency and the rise of DAOs, because now we have all the necessary ingredients for individuals to participate and get rewarded in contributing to a network by writing code, by creating content, by creating community, by maintaining, operating a network. And that helps to decentralize and spread the power around to those who are willing to put in the work in order to have a say in how things are done. And that's really the core tenets of Web3. And how does the metaverse relate to Web3? The relationship is this. If you want to participate in a DAO, you don't have to show up with your real world identity, right? You can show up in, in, a, in a pseudonym. You can imagine a metaverse being a virtual reality world where you show up not just as a string of letters as part of pseudonym, but you can show up as, as a particular avatar, a character that represents you. And you could have power, you could have multiple avatars in the same metaverse or different metaverses participating in different DAOs based on the brands that you want to create. Right? For a particular category of DAO, you might want to participate at, as one identity, one avatar, because of the brand that avatar represents. But for a different category of DAOs, maybe it's in a different industry, you might want to show up as a different avatar. And, and Metaverse gives you that flexibility to show up in multiple identities. And even in today's social media Web2 world, we're starting to see you know, Gen Z users uh, opening multiple accounts because they want one account that is visible by the parents, another one that, that, that's used with their friends, a third one that they might use for dating. So I guarantee you that my avatar will be six foot three inches tall and it'll be a lot slim, more slender than I am. All right, so let's talk a little bit about you and your career and where you are today, because I wanna make sure that our listeners understand that you know what the heck you're talking about. You run Enya and you co-founded Boba Network. So what does each of those companies do, Enya and Boba? And what's their relationship? Enya is a U.S. company. It's a technology company that, uh, that I co-founded. And Boba Network is a decentralized blockchain project where Enya is a contributor to. Now, okay. what governs the Boba Network is a nonprofit foundation that was set up for the benefit of the growth of the network. And the foundation pays Enya to build out this network as a project. Okay, so Enya's building it. What will Boba Network be when it's fully built out? What is it? So Boba Network is a blockchain scaling solution. In the industry, it's called a layer two solution. Layer two. Layer two, meaning it's, it, is, it runs on a layer one network like Ethereum. So Boba Network started its life as an Ethereum layer two solution. It helps Ethereum become faster, cheaper, 
it aggregates Ethereum transactions onto, onto Boba network so that uh, not the transactions don't have to be computed repeatedly on, on the Ethereum network across all the different nodes. They are done, done once on Boba and then Boba network will commit enough information to the Ethereum network to prove that the transactions were processed correctly. And since those original days, Boba network has now expanded to other layer one blockchains like Phantom and Moonbeam to help them scale, become faster and cheaper. As so well. is Phantom, are Phantom and Moonbeam like Ethereum? They are alternative smart contract platforms like Ethereum. They are Ethereum compatible, meaning you can take a smart contract on Ethereum and deploy it on these other networks. Now, why do these other alternative layer ones exist? Because when Ethereum was first created, it was the first smart contract platform. So since then, uh, folks have learned a lot from Ethereum's lessons and created newer and better versions of Ethereum compatible blockchains. So are you sort of like an API that helps uh, one system talk to another system? Um, yeah, it's not, it's not really an API, but rather a set, a set of smart contracts that are deployed on existing blockchains to help them run faster, more efficiently, process more transactions. So who are your customers? Are they the, is it, is it Ethereum or is it the people that are trying to use Ethereum? Uh, well, our customers are, first of all, developers. We need developers that are interested in deploying their smart contracts on Boba Network, but also users. But developers come first because developers create applications. If there are no applications, there are no end users. It's like operating a theme park. If you have, don't have any rides, you won't have any visitors. I love the metaphor. That's perfect. All right. So what do you think the world would look like five years from now as it relates to both blockchain and crypto? Yeah, five years is for, forever. People say crypto years are like dog years. No, um, <laughs> that's 35 years from now. Okay, maybe you could do two or three years, whatever you feel comfortable answering. Yeah, um, regardless of the time frame, we're talking about something that is long, far out enough. The Web3 world has to become a lot more integrated with the existing Web2 world, physical world, real, so-called real world or the fiat world. And the reason is, for technology to, to become broadly relevant to, to mainstream consumers, that has to be the way. And we see the potential of Web3 be getting, getting there, but we're far from it. But give us five years, I think there's a good chance that we'll get there. Uh, if you look at the rise of the web from the early days of really hokey websites that really HTML pages that nobody paid attention to, to now how pervasive it is, or the rise of mobile to, from like really high-end expensive smartphones to now people using them for, to run their own lives. Web3 is going to trend that way as well because of the permissionless nature of the technology and enabling a lot more users to participate, whether it's, it is in finance or in finding an, an online technology job, or they don't even think of it as a job, as a gig, I guess, as a DAO participant to contribute and get rewarded in cryptocurrency and start building out their own crypto portfolio just by their own labor. Web3 will have to become more integrated with the real world. Take DeFi as an example, decentralized finance. Up until now, it's been its own little bubble, but there's already a budding movement of creating DeFi applications that are representative of real world assets, cash flow. And if that trend takes off, that means anyone around the world could start investing in cash flows that are being created by commercial real estate in the US or in the UK in a way that is much 
more frictionless than the world that we see today. Alan, thank you so very, very much for being on the show. I thoroughly enjoyed this and I learned a ton and I think our listeners will as well. Thank you. It was a real pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening to Stanford Pathfinders on SiriusXM. Listen to this and other episodes anytime on demand with SiriusXM app or wherever you like to find your podcasts.